Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today's feature story is from Grave Tales, Melbourne, Volume 1. Play on, the story of Holocaust survivor Leo Rosner. It was 1939, Hitler's Nazi party was in power, Germany invaded Poland, and two years later in 1941, 23-year-old Leo Rosner and his family, along with other Jewish citizens, were rounded up and confined in the Krakow ghetto. This is the story of a Jewish Holocaust survivor who made a post-war life in Melbourne, and decades later featured in the movie Schindler's List. This is Leo's story, and today we'll talk to his daughter, Anna Rosner. It's hard to imagine, I suspect, for the Rosner family that their history would end up like this. Yeah, it is. I mean, they were living very happily in Poland before the Nazis came along. We all know the story of the Holocaust and the German invasion and all the murders, millions of murders. But I sometimes think we don't really understand, because we can't relate to it, the true gravity of it. One night, the knock on the door and be told to pack a bag now and come outside. It's just inconceivable, isn't it? It sure is. That's what happened to the Rosners. They were sent to a little village outside of Krakow to begin with, and then brought back into the Krakow ghetto, which is where they lived in overcrowded conditions, virtually imprisoned. The area was small, it was surrounded by barbed wire, Mm. there was a tram that ran through it, but it made no stops inside the ghetto. Mm. And so this came upon the Jewish people of Poland in a series of moves. It Mm. was first degradation to a a certain level, signs on windows, windows Mm. being smashed, and it got to the point where people were literally killed in the streets. But this is Leo's story, and Leo was a talented musician. Uh, the whole family was. Leo's brothers, Henry and Samak, played the violin. His brother, Bill, played the trumpet. His sister, Marisha, played the piano. His other sister, Merla, like Leo, played the piano accordion. And from the age of 12, Leo was playing in his father's orchestra at weddings and dances. At 16, he joined his brothers, and they were playing the music in demand across Poland at the time, which was the tangos and foxtrots. It was a bright, sparkling future. So it was such a shock, as you can imagine, then to have in 1941, the family moved into this Krakow ghetto. Now, Leo was 23, and his family, along with four other families, were crowded into one apartment. And Leo's younger sister, Bronia, had passed away at this stage, and his older brother, George, had left for America, thank goodness, before the war broke out and Leo made the best of it he played the accordion in a coffee house in the basement of his building from an approved list of submitted songs that they had to give to the German office of propaganda it was one year later in 1942 when the family was torn apart Leo's parents and all Jews aged over 55 were forcibly removed Leo would never see his parents again children were hidden Regular searches were conducted by the Nazis. I think one of the most horrific things that must have stayed with Leo all his life was the death of his sister and his sister's son. His sister, Merla, had a little boy, Juzi Yu. And as part of these searches, Juzi Yu was taken by a Nazi. Merla pleaded for him to be returned, but the Nazi smashed his skull against a brick wall. He then pulled out a revolver and shot Merla in the head. And Leo witnessed all that act of brutality. Two siblings who once sat and played piano accordion together. It's yeah. just horrific, isn't it? But there were moments of happiness. Leo met his wife, Helen. What a beautiful name that is. <laughs> in the same apartment of the ghetto. And despite their uncertain future, they were married on Sunday, 17th of January, 1943. And they shared one day of married life together before Leo was sent off to Plazos camp. 
Yeah, and it wasn't long before Helen found herself there as well. So they ended up in this horrible joint, which was run by a fellow by the name of Eamon Goth, who was the commandant, considered one of the most brutal Nazis. He was known as the Butcher of Platzau. The camp was surrounded by an electric barbed wire fence. Men, women and people of different nationalities were segregated. Thousands of people were shot dead there. And Eamon Goth had the habit of coming out daily, uh, carrying his rifle, stand on the front of his, his office area and literally shoot prisoners who were moving around the camp. There's a photograph in our book of him standing there, bare-chested, cigarette in mouth, rifle over shoulder, just waiting to start his murderous efforts Mm. on that particular day. Now that may sound familiar to a lot of our listeners, and it will be because that scene features in Schindler's List. In fact, Leo's story features in the movie Schindler's List. Leo recalls himself trembling all the time. Armand Goth was killing Jews like flies. Not only was that terrifying, but the food was very, very poor and there was very little of it. It was Leo's musical skills that really saved him at that time. Leo was asked by Goth to play at various parties, uh, dinners, and that's where he first ran into Schindler. Yeah. Leo recalled that he'd have to change out of their camp uniform into a tuxedo. Yeah. And then they'd be at this dinner party where they were just struck by terror as they'd be playing for Armand Goth and German soldiers. They'd get a little bit to eat there. But each time he finished, Goth would say to him, you Jewish warmongers, get out after they'd finished playing. And he said they'd be shaking with fright. They never knew what to expect. He said on one occasion, a gun was put to his head and to his brother's head and he had to drink a little vodka and keep playing after that. He said he was sick after that. But yeah, you're right. That's where he met Oscar Schindler. And he speaks very fondly of Schindler. He said that Schindler drank a lot, but he was always in control, and that he was a very kind man to them. And Schindler would be recognised for saving hundreds of Jewish people by recruiting them to his workforce at the enamelware factory. And it was just adjacent to Plazo camp where they were stationed. Helen was added to the protection list as well, which is a wonderful blessing. In 1944, the Soviet army was approaching, and the Germans began to dismantle Plazo. And many were transferred to other camps, including Auschwitz-Birkenau which we all know the horrendous story of Auschwitz. But Leo and a group of men were deported to Gross-Rosen extermination camp in October 1944. And then he found out Helen was sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Leo said when they went to the Gross-Rosen extermination camp, they were washed, shaved of all their hair, and accordion and violin was taken off them. And he said for the first time in his life, the music had stopped. But he said it was also very strange to be saved by a German Nazi. And it was Oskar Schindler who rescued Leo, Henry and Oleg and sheltered them in Brunlitz, where he'd relocated his factory to. Leo said, when I came to Schindler's camp in Brunlitz, he asked me where those instruments were. And I said they took them away. Mm. And he must have had a bit of know-how Uh, Oscar Schindler or he knew the right people because he got hold of a German soldier who was sent off to find these instruments and bring them back which he did Mm. Uh, so clearly Schindler knew the right people and he then also rescued the women who'd been routed to Auschwitz including Helen and Leo said I've been waiting there three weeks in fright to see her I didn't believe I'd see her again and finally she arrived with the other women so we spent till end of the war together Leo said he doesn't know why but thanks to Schindler we're definitely alive He said he thinks he was a human with a good heart. And he recalls how Schindler was caught by the Gestapo several times and he bribed the right people, drank with the right people, and he always landed well, in Leo's words. He said every moment you could be killed all the time you lived in fright. He said, I never thought there was a moment that I would survive this war. But when we came to Schindler's camp, we started to breathe. 
Schindler had prevented the deportation of more than 1,000 Jews, including mm. Leo and Helen. And seven months later, after that, 9th of May 1945, they were all liberated by Soviet troops. And so it was a new start for Leo and Helen. In a very much disrupted Europe because of what had happened during the war, they went to Munich. Yeah, literally starting over, having lost absolutely everything, including their parents and, and many relatives and friends. Leo and Helen had two daughters, Anna, what we had the pleasure of speaking to. G'day Anna, great to talk. Welcome. Anna, your mother and father both lived through the horrors of the Holocaust. How much did they share with you growing up? Look, they actually didn't speak about it at all in front of me. I think I picked up things overhearing them talking to their friends and I knew they always said before the war, after the war, it was like a dividing line. <laughs> but I knew very little. I knew it was something dreadful that had happened but as a child you just don't ask questions you don't know and it was only in my perhaps mid-30s that I started to become aware of the Holocaust and it was only when Tom Keneally wrote Schindler's Ark that came out in the 80s and he had interviewed my father's brothers in America and my dad here. Mum didn't want to talk to him at all. She went out into the garden whenever he came. So he wrote this amazing book and I was reading it and I remember how moved I felt because I I had not known any of this detail. This was a story of what my parents went through. Amazing. My uncle, who was the first one who started to talk to me about his experience, he was there too. All four of them were in the Holocaust together and Uncle Joseph Gross was also saved by Schindler. And my aunt said, I want to tell you my story and she started talking to me. My mother didn't want to speak. She said, I don't remember, it's too long ago, it happened to somebody else. Yeah which is a typical reaction of some survivors. Some apparently talk all the time to their children and some don't talk at all. But once she opened up and started sharing, it was amazing. I'm very grateful. And I wrote a book about my mother and my aunt, Sister Sister, that gave me some sort of context for what they had been through and also what I had been through because the child's voice is there as well, trying to make sense of the world when you live with four traumatised survivors. We all lived in one flat first and then in one house in Australia. Was there anything that you learnt after those conversations that explained things that may have happened? Yes, I understood more around food, for instance. My mother was always afraid that I'd be hungry. And I learnt without thinking, even now, I often can't finish the last morsel on my plate because if I finished everything, mum would think I was still hungry and give me more. And I've been told that when I was very little, about three, she took me to a doctor because she thought I wasn't eating enough. And yet I see photos of myself and I'm a perfectly normal chubby baby. But she was obviously obsessed with food and keeping enough food in the house and always serving too much. And my aunt always had food in her handbag wherever she went, just in case. So food was a big issue. Wow. How did your parents feel about Oscar Schindler? They were close to him all along until he died. Schindler loved Dad's music and after the war... After they went back to Krakow to their hometown and found, you know, everything gone and everyone disappeared, Dad had an older brother who had gone to Munich to find some work because he was also a musician. So Mum and Dad went to Munich and lived with his brother Henry 
and his wife Nancy and Oscar Schindler and his latest girlfriend in a big apartment for about six months until mum just couldn't stand the German language and found it very difficult. But there was a group called the Schindler Juden, a group of survivors who financially supported him and his wife till the end because he had, as you know, I'm sure, a lot of failed business dealings and could never really make a success of his life. Yeah. My father thought he was wonderful. He knows that he, he said he was a womanizer, a gambler, a, a cheat, but he saved my life. He was a good person. Yeah. Whereas my uncle, who also was rescued by Schindler, didn't have those feelings. He had lost a wife and child uh, the Nazis had killed and he lost his parents. He lost nine brothers and sisters and there was absolutely nobody left. Mm. So he was very bitter that Schindler used him. He was a jeweller and he was used um, during the war to help make tools and to fashion things out of metal. So Schindler found him useful. Mm-hmm. But he never felt that he should be grateful to to Schindler. So very contrasting views. Yeah. I love the story about the blue woolen cloth. Yes, it's at the end of the war. Schindler took his group of Jews to Brinlitz and into a what used to be a clothing factory. And there they were supposed to be producing armaments for the war effort. Making bullets. Yes, it never actually happened. Whenever there was an inspection, they would just show something but didn't actually produce things. It was terribly risky for Oscar Schindler. Yes, but up in the storeroom, there were these bolts of woolen cloth that at the end of the war he gave to each of the survivors and dad came to Melbourne with that blue cloth and had a suit made out of it which when he passed away my oldest son got it and I'm trying to remember whether he's got it or whether he donated it to the Jewish Museum. It was like the only remnant of something from that time. Mm. Tell us Anna something about your father. How was settling into Melbourne when he first got there? I know you were very young at the time. Yes, obviously he brought his accordion with him. And just to go back a little bit, when he went from Poland to France, where I was born in Paris in 47, apparently the first day he got there, he took his accordion and went to a local restaurant and played for a couple of hours and came home with bread and sausage. And that was how he sort of began earning money. So he came to Australia and again, he couldn't speak the language, but he found Dennis Farrington, who had a big band and was helpful for refugees. And he started playing with this band. Music was the only way he knew how to earn money. He went on some radio talent show, the gong show, and Dad was one of the few who got four gongs. So apparently it was uh, it was a big success. People loved him. He was a wonderful entertainer and a storyteller and a joke teller. And That was the side that he presented to the world that was part of his survival, was to please people. But at home he was a very nervous, anxious person and got angry quite often and shouted a lot and was very controlling, all sorts of things. My mum had all kinds of problems, emotional and physical, but I think a lot of her difficulty was that they weren't really a well-matched couple they loved each other in in lots of ways but mum was 19 when she married in the ghetto when they married and then he was taken away the night of the wedding so she had a traumatic beginning yeah absolutely and dad I mean he did what he could he really loved her and cared for her but he had a, a nature that was 
complex. <laughs> but people loved him. I mean, in Melbourne, anybody who from that generation particularly in the Jewish community, all remember him because he brought joy and he brought memories of the old country and they all knew the songs and the music. Even on the ship coming out, I was two and one woman was seasick. A lot of people were seasick, but she said, when Rosner plays, I can dance and then I'm not seasick. So she wanted him to play all the time. I read somewhere that he learned all the footy songs. (laughs) Oh, yes, he loved playing the footy songs. (laughs) He loved Australia and he really worked hard he carried not just his accordion he played double bass as well which is a big instrument yeah and working at night mostly of course so then he had to sleep during the day and I had to be very quiet but he provided enough my mother started to work in a factory and we lived together as I said in one house with aunt and uncle so obviously they were saving as much money as they could. And how did you and Mr. Rosner, your dad, feel about being part of the epilogue of the film of Schindler's List and taking that journey to record it? Look, interesting questions because I had no idea that's what they were doing. They were going to America to see his brothers. He had three brothers in America. I knew nothing about the film or about uh, Schindler or about Spielberg until they came back and they said a film was made and then... There was a private showing. I remember I went with my parents to this little cinema somewhere in South Melbourne and I was sitting next to my mother and she was gripping the sides of the seat and she was muttering, I'm here, I'm not there, I'm here, I'm not there. Shocking stuff. Yes, and they thought it was very realistic and very well done, except Dad said the prisoners were not skinny enough and Goethe, the commandant, wasn't horrible enough. But when I saw them coming over the, the hill, uh, that last sequence, and it turns to colour again, it was all new to me. So I can only imagine what they went through at the ending of that film and meeting all those actors who played the role of my dad and the role of his brother and even dad's sister, who Keneally didn't realise it was his sister because she had a different surname, of course, and she and her daughter were portrayed in the film and in the book. It was all protecting. It was all not really wanting to share, and it was only when somebody else had written about it and somebody else had filmed it that they could say, here, this is what we went through. Yeah. But It was too difficult for them to put it in their own words. But Dad was lucky that his siblings did survive, most of them. Even after the book and the film of Schindler's List, my father told his story publicly to schools and to groups. But when I asked him, I sat down with him and I said, tell me about your mother. And he said, well, she was small and hardworking. And I said, well, what else? He said, that's it. She was small and hardworking. And he just couldn't get into any kind of reflection or going into those details. The things he did remember about the war were horrific, of course, but he just focused on the present and he didn't hate the Germans. He said there were good ones and bad ones and he's just grateful that he's got a good life here. So the other thing that I got from them was how lucky I was to be here, but it meant I always had to be happy. That was the message from them. Don't complain because, you know, nothing that you experience is is bad. And as a child and as a teenager, I didn't rebel. You internalise that. You don't know that you've got your own feelings of sadness or disappointment or anger. I just had to squash those feelings down. 
In relation to the German descendants, some of which feel generational guilt, do you feel or does your generation feel generational anger? I remember hearing some young German people whose fathers had been involved and they said we suffer with the guilt all the time because they were criminals, whereas for Jewish people you weren't guilty of the fate that you suffered. I suppose that there's also... I'd have to say a positive side of joy in appreciating life, knowing how precious things are, appreciating connections and friendships and family because it's particularly important to have family get-togethers and Friday night Shabbat meals and now with uh, Rosh Hashanah, the New Year's coming up. But yes, there's complex emotions. I joined a group called Second Generation children of Holocaust survivors. And we used to meet and discover the similarities of the emotions that we were dealing with, trying to separate ourselves from our parents and not to carry their guilt. Because I always said to my mother, I know you did the best you could. You went through such a dreadful time. And of course, you wanted to protect us children. You didn't want to talk about horrible, sad things. So I understood that. But After my book came out, my mother would say, I feel so terrible, I feel bad that you've got all these problems. And I said, look, you know, I'm not blaming you. I do probably suffer from anxiety and I worry too much, which is a typical trait. But we're aware that even it goes to the third generation. My son said to me once, I know that good things can get taken away in a flash, that nothing is certain, but it was particularly part of our parents' existence doing what they could to survive, to stay safe. It was always important. Lock the doors, be careful, don't do anything that could be dangerous. I heard a very interesting statement recently in relation to the Hiroshima bombing anniversary. One of the survivors said she was concerned that the tragedy was moving from living memory to history. And Anna, what are your thoughts about that in relation to the Holocaust? Yes, look, it is a big concern. i support the Jewish Holocaust Centre that does some amazing work in educating children. But I think that the world has moved in a way that is very frightening for Jewish people. There's a huge increase in anti-Semitism around the world. And even in Melbourne, there are students at high school who are getting picked on and bashed up and being called dirty Jews, as if the Holocaust didn't happen or it's been distorted. There's always been Holocaust deniers, people who say, you know, it's all just made up, which obviously there's so much evidence and testimony that it's hard to believe. Both my parents did this video testimony for Oscar Schindler's foundation, and some schools do teach the Holocaust as part of their curriculum, but I've seen videos of students at university in America at college who have no idea when it happened or what it actually was about. So maybe that's inevitable. Leo and Helen's rest in Springvale Jewish Cemetery in Melbourne. It's a really well laid out cemetery. Yes, it's very traditional. The thought that they're there and aunt and uncle are in the row behind them, they're all together and we can visit. And of course, the wonderful memories that I've got from them. They don't actually disappear. I think I've always felt close to them. And even now, as long as they live in your memory, they are alive, but they are just present. They're part of who I am. 
So how do I pay your respects in Springvale Jewish Cemetery in Melbourne? Not hard to find at all. We had a little trouble, but the graves are very close together. Drive down to compartment 12, walk into row M, grave 19, and you'll find Leo and Helen together. Take the time also to have a bit of a look around. There's monuments, the Holocaust victims. Thanks again, Anna, very much for making time for us today. Yeah, great to talk. Thank you. Oh, look, I appreciate your interest, and I'm glad I could share some of what I know. So what became of the family? Well, Leo actually outlived all of his nine brothers and sisters. Not only did he have two daughters, Anna, we had the pleasure of speaking to, and Francis, along with six grandchildren and six great-grandchildren at the time we wrote our story. If you had a chance to view the 1993 film Schindler's List, you'll see Leo in the epilogue, as we mentioned with Anna earlier. Now, Leo's wife, Helen, had a horrific time herself in the concentration camp, and at one stage she almost lost her life. She was caught smoking by Commandant Goff in the camp. She gained the cigarette by trading a piece of bread, and he pulled out his revolver and held it against her head, but an aide whispered it was Leo's wife, the accordionist. He stuck the gun back in his holster and walked off, but gave her a push to the ground for good measure. Helen's story has been captured by her daughter Anna in the book Sister, Sister, so grab that story. And Helen died in 2010, aged 86. Oscar Schindler, when the war ended, he and his wife fled Germany, obviously, aided by the Schinderjuden, uh, the people who he had saved. He was wanted for war crimes in Czechoslovakia, apparently due to earlier espionage activities that he was involved with. He went to Argentina, but he'd spent all his money trying to save as many of the Jewish prisoners as he could, and he was declared bankrupt in 1957. He again was supported by donations from those people that he had saved, and he died of liver failure in 1974. He was 66 years old and was buried in the Catholic Cemetery at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And you can see his grave in the end of the film when all the Schindler-Juden put a little stone yeah, on. Stone on it. Yeah. yeah, The villain, Armand Goth, he reigned as commandant of the Krakow Plaza concentration camp from February 1943 until September 1944, so just over in a year a bit, and that was during Leo's internment. And he was arrested and charged with theft of state property, the mistreatment of prisoners and allowing unauthorised access to camp records. This he, was arrested by his own... His own people yeah. in September 1944. But for a little while he was placed in hospital in Bavaria suffering from a mental illness, there was no doubt about that. And he was arrested in 1945 by US troops. So Armand Goth was sentenced to death and hanged on the 13th of September 1946, not far from the concentration camp where he caused so much fear and suffering. His last words were... Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler, they were indeed. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the Vistula River. He was 38 years old. So the Plaza concentration camp remains largely in the same state as it was left, just abandoned. No museum or tour guides, just a chance to visit and remember those who died there, and the remains of approximately 10,000 prisoners buried on site. Schindler's Factory, opened to the public as a museum in 2010, tells the story of Krakow and Nazi occupation. Have you ever been to a concentration camp? I have. Which one? I went to Dachau just outside Munich. Yeah, that's what I went many, to. Many, many, many years ago. Now I saw some of the worst things that happened there, not the sort of, like the sort of things that happened there during the war, but some tourists with their oh. kids sitting them up in the ovens and taking photographs and oh. those sorts of things, which were, you know, we didn't stay there long. Yeah. There's images on the wall that I will never forget after my visit to it. It's yeah. truly harrowing, but I agree and understand the purpose and I think they, it's, they must remain so that we remember. But this is Leo's story, and I love that Leo learned all the footy club songs. Well, you would. Well, you would. Love fishing, going out all day on boat from St Kilda Pier, or sitting patiently on a rock waiting for a bite. It's a million miles from his day in Plazo camp, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.